Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Stephen Kiernan will join us to discuss the universe of two. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, World War II gave birth to one of the most scientifically innovative, yet perhaps most ethically challenged projects in human history, the Manhattan Project. Joining us today to discuss his novel set during this period is Mr. Stephen Kiernan. He is a graduate of Middlebury College, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Iowa's Writers' Workshop. He's a renowned author who has won numerous awards, including the Breckner Center's Freedom of Information Award, the Scripps Howard Award for Distinguished Service to the First Amendment, and the George Polk Award. He's the author of two previous novels, The Curiosity and The Hummingbird, and he has penned the new book, Universe of Two. Mr. Kiernan, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. I'm delighted to be with you. Great novel you've written here, Universe of Two, set within the period where the Manhattan Project was being built. Why did you decide to choose this setting? Well, the first thing was that I encountered a story about uh, a guy named Charles Fisk. It really got my attention. Charles was a, a young, bright as Dickens mathematician who graduated young from Harvard and was pulled into the Manhattan Project not really knowing what his role would be. And he ended up being on the uh, detonator team, you know, designed to figure out how to trigger the atomic weapons and successfully designed as part of that team. And then after the war, he got a full ride to Stanford to get a PhD in physics, but they were really focusing on building more bombs there. And he dropped out after less than a semester. And he took a job with a uh, company that repaired church organs. And when he died in 1983, he was considered one of the greatest cathedral organ builders in history. And I thought that was a fascinating arc. So I started to learn about this real guy and found that he was way too complex for something that would lend itself to a novel, but that his arc was an interesting one. And I started to learn a little bit about the making of the atomic bomb, which is, you know, a spectacular feat of science and technology to go from zero to Hiroshima in 29 months or something like that. The number of inventions and discoveries along the way, just, you know, breathtaking. At the same time, that it raised all kinds of ethical questions. And the story of the scientists, many of whom were working on the bomb, but opposing its use on people, that story has not really been told. And so I thought, well, what's a way to begin to just peel back the layers of that and, and talk about these scientists who were working on a project with great excitement in terms of the discoveries, but with real apprehension about what it would mean in, in the human dimension. One of the interesting features about this scientist, Charles Fisk, is much like many of the scientists, they really weren't aware of all the parts that were going into it or what the impact would be until well after everything happened. And only then did their conscience become impacted. Well, it's, it's fascinating. I read a bunch of kind of self-published memoirs 
by wives of the uh, scientists. And one of the things that was almost almost comical is what the recruitment would be like, which is that some very, very senior scientist, you know, who had won a Nobel Prize kind of thing, would call a professor at a college or university, a professor of chemistry or physics or metallurgy, mathematics maybe, and say, we need you to be part of the war effort. It's a huge thing. It's going to be a couple of years. You can bring your family with you. We can't tell you what it is or where it is. Can we, will you join? And many of these professors said, sure. And they picked up their families and they came to Los Alamos, New Mexico, where everyone had the same address and their driver's licenses had no address on them and all of that. And they went to work on this, not allowed to tell their spouses what they were doing. Many of the women figured it out, of course, but it was it was a lot of these scientists came and then they needed tech staff for their labs. So they brought all their grad students with them and say, this will really get your career off to a great start. The result is the average age in Los Alamos, New Mexico, kind of the headquarters of the bond development project was 27. And Robert Oppenheimer, who was director of the Manhattan Project, they called him the old man and he was 39. So you have to think about these young scientists early in their careers, ambitious and also wanting to make a patriotic contribution while the war is raging on two continents and getting into this project and only gradually coming to understand what it is that they're building and what its potential power could be and how it might be used and how they feel it ought to be used. To me, this is a this is a great kind of moral quandary, which is one of the things that makes novels tick, you know, is people trying to figure out what to do. And the other dimension that, that makes novels tick, of course, is if there's a love story and there are people who are outside of the dilemma who are trying to influence the people, you know, the lovers of the people involved in this predicament and how they as normal people and as non-scientists try to understand and maybe have an influence. Universe of Two, where uh, protagonist here has fallen in love with the character Brenda Doobie. She is a skilled organist in, in your story. What did you see in her and that outside perspective that she brought to the story? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question uh, because part of it was, you know, it, the book alternates in chapters. Um, one chapter is with the scientists. And what I always think is that that chapter, those chapters have a security clearance. They know what's going on. But the other chapters, which are Brenda's stories, are what it would have been like for you and me, people who are outside of this situation. And we can tell that something serious is going on, but we don't know what it is. We hear that it might end the war, but it might also be enormously destructive. So, for example, every time that Charlie, my main character, Charlie Fish, has a hesitation, he's got some quandaries trying to work through, should I participate in building this weapon. He can't tell Brenda what's what's wrong, but he's hesitating. And Brenda always says, just man up, be a soldier, be strong, without any idea what she's actually encouraging him to do. Is that, that is sort of the relationship I think all non-combatants have with the people who are involved in warfare, whether, you know, today it would be somebody who's, you know, the loved one of a person deployed in Afghanistan or Iraq, for example. You say, you know, go be great and don't get hurt and come home in one piece and we'll miss you. And there is that dichotomy, the person who's engaged in the war and the person who's observing it and loving the person engaged. I thought, how heartbreaking would it be? You know, how tough would it be? And how would a couple 
weather these challenges. Their relationship certainly evolves and changes as more of the layers of what's going on become apparent to both of them. How did you see those changes taking place within both their perspectives? Well, the first piece is the perspective, I think, especially for your listeners, is to, to talk about Charlie's role in the science. You know, I'm a novelist, not a scientist, and learning the science for this book was enormously complex and demanding and took a long time. It's also, I have to say, incredibly cool and fascinating what they did and what they were seeking to do and now where kind of nuclear science has advanced. There's a guy, a real person, who invented the electron microscope, the nuclear reactor, and, you know, the microwave oven, a bunch of other things. And years later, when he had bladder cancer, he invented cobalt radiation therapy and saved his own life. And it's still used now. I mean, so, you know, the, the genius of these people was really fun. And so there's ways that for Charlie, this was really exciting. And for me as, as a writer, it was really, it was pretty fun to learn all of this stuff. And meanwhile, you have Brenda, who's just like being a girlfriend. And she's sort of this sassy Chicago girl who has no idea how close she is to something as powerful as the atomic bomb. And a lot of the book is told, her part of the book is told looking back. So when she's kind of bratty with Charlie in 1944, she thinks about it now and she really regrets that she wasn't kinder, that she didn't appreciate what he was going through. And, um, you know, this is not the first war book that I've written. And I've seen people kind of, as they understand what their spouses or loved ones endured, how they become more loving. Uh, Brenda's mother also, her because Brenda's father is serving in one capacity, Brenda's mother also becomes a more loving person, just understanding what the soldier goes through, basically. And she is not scientific at all. She's an artist. She's a musician, right? She's an organist and piano player. So she doesn't understand that part at all. Do you think the inability to reveal that part of themselves causes this friction and, and prevents that flow of compassion between the... So you think about a, a moment like this. So I'm going to do a 30-second, here's how you make an atomic bomb, okay? <laughs> if, you take a, if you take a big, big atoms that are unstable what we call the heavy metals, uranium, plutonium, and so on. If you fire a neutron through them, they'll break into pieces. And in the process, they'll let off a little pop. They will also let off a bunch of more neutrons so that if there's more uranium around, for example, they'll cause other uranium atoms to split, pop, 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 pop. And if you get enough of them together, then you only need to send the first one in and they will continue themselves and pop, 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 and that's called a chain reaction. So, so the way that the bomb that Charlie's working on, he's working on a plutonium bomb, is they keep the, the plutonium apart, you know, kind of spaced out over an area about the size of a basketball. And around it, there's a very complicated mechanism, weighs a little over five tons. And what it does is have regular detonating material around the outside of it, so that when that stuff blows, it crushes that ball of plutonium down to a very tiny space and all the popping occurs. And there's even some beryllium and polonium in there, which shoots out lots of neutrons to help the popping get started. So to give you an order of magnitude of this in that five ton device, the actual detonating component, it weighs about as much as a case of beer and the actual plutonium weighs about as much as a dollar 50 in quarters. Okay cost a half a billion dollars to make that stuff, but it's about, it's about six quarters, okay? And when you press it all down like that and it goes pop, 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 
the explosive force of that dollar fifty and quarters is the same as eighteen thousand five hundred tons of TNT. Now, Charlie, all he knows is he's got to come up with a way to use regular explosives to crush that sphere down so that the, the basketball inside gets crushed down to a small space. And for, for much of the book, he's working away like a good little doobie, doing his math, doing his soldering, doing his testing of munitions and so on, detonating materials with no idea. And then there's a day in which there are lectures. And in fact, there were lectures in Los Alamos where they would on Sunday, they'd say, okay, here's how a bomb actually works. So people could, the scientists could, could influence each other's thinking and share ideas and so on. Um, there's a day in which Charlie realizes that what he's making is the trigger, is the match that starts the whole fire. And for him, it has this immense moral weight that he is going to be the trigger and and who knows how strong it could be and who knows how this will be used and many of the most senior scientists in the world this is historically accurate were writing letters to the department of war the secretary of state the president saying don't use it on people demonstrate it on some pacific island and give japan an opportunity to surrender hundreds of scientists signed petitions don't use it on people meanwhile Charlie goes to have a date with his girlfriend and she's like, you're kind of glum chum, right? She has no idea the weight of what is on him. And um, I think about like two people who love each other, having that distance created between them by their responsibilities in wartime. And the good news about this novel, I think is that they survive it and they weather it and they find their redemption together. And I don't want to do a spoiler about how they find their redemption. But it starts with just Charlie's little part. All he knows is he's got to get these things to to blow up at the same time, which is not easy pre-computer days to get things to happen at exactly the same time. And um, and how he has to figure that out and how that then affects how people treat each other after the war and how they live with themselves. Uh, situations where people, they set themselves down to do the job, they focus on their job, and then afterwards they realize the full impact of what they did. Um, Oppenheimer, of course, has his famous quote from the test where he says, now I've become uh, death, the destroyer of worlds. Yes. At the end of his uh, of his time at Los Alamos, he gave a speech, and when he was leaving Los Alamos, he said, if atomic bombs are to be added, so this is after the war, right? If atomic bombs are are to be added as new weapons in the arsenals of the warring world, or to the arsenals of nations preparing for war, then the time will come when mankind, this is Robert Oppenheimer saying this, the time will come when mankind will curse the name, the names of Los Alamos and Hiroshima. The people of this world must unite or they will perish. You know, this is where the scientists were and that story's kind of lost. And, you know, I even think if you step away from science for a moment, I think every human being has moments in their lives when they have not lived up to their consciences. I know I have. I can think instantly of times when I was just not my best self. And the question then is, if you didn't follow your conscience, what did you do to repair it or to remedy it or to find redemption? And that's really the question that Charlie faces and Brenda faces in this novel is how do they find redemption? 
And the good news is that they do. They find redemption through their love for each other. And the organ turns out to be a piece of it, of all things. But, um, but it's a question that this is where I think the book has a scientific question that also applies to every person. Now, I know, Charles, of course, you've never done anything that would test your conscience. But let's just say to your listeners, right, how do we, how do we make repairs when we've, when we've done something that wasn't our best moment? And can we find redemption? And the good news for Charlie and Brenda is that they do. Um, and so did some of the scientists. You know, Joseph Rothblatt resigned from the Manhattan Project because he didn't want the bombs to be used on people. He founded something called the Pugwash Conferences, which started out as this kind of quixotic idea of uh, that they were going to eliminate nuclear weapons from the world. And uh, that, of course, that didn't happen. But what they did end up doing was becoming kind of conveners of, of talks about um, about these weapons, and and they became participants in that, and they were involved in the first test ban treaty. They were in, in 1963. They were involved in an anti-proliferation treaty in 1968. They authored a part of the um, uh, the test uh, a missile uh, ballistic missile treaty in 1972, and Joseph Rothblatt won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work. He was a Manhattan Project scientist who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Like, it is possible to find redemption. And um, part of what this story is about, too. Many of the scientists looked back, had tried to make amends with what they'd done and for their conscience. But yet, we really don't look back and curse Los Alamos. It's a period in our history, but clear arms are still there, war's still there. I mean, have we evolved so much from that period? <laughs> Well, it's clear that Hiroshima and Nagasaki are some very, very effective deterrent. Here we are 75 years later, and no nation has launched or used one of these weapons against another nation since the surrender of Japan. So that's, that says that we did, in fact, learn something. You know, if you look back at history, it's fascinating. Throughout history, whenever mankind invented a new instrument of war, we used it immediately, the trebuchet, gunpowder, the airplane, submarine, always. We always use it right away. But it was with a certain morality, if I can say that, about war, which was, this is a weapon to be used against enemy soldiers and sailors and Marines, right? It was combatant and against combatant. And the line that the atomic weapon crosses is that they're so powerful, they do not discriminate. Who they kill. They kill everyone, the criminal and the little kid, the murderer and the monk. Everyone dies. And so that, that crossed a, a line in terms of what we think the boundaries of warf warfare are. And, um, and that has shocked the world for 75 years. And, you know, I think mostly as Americans, we think about, you know, what is, what is Russia up to? And, you know, is North Korea really making intercontinental ballistic missiles? But that may not be how it happens. It could be between Israel and Iran. You know, Pakistan and India, both nuclear nations, right now warring over parts of Kashmir. And we would not. We would be third parties in that. And they have enough weapons to, you know, make our atmosphere toxic and kill millions of people and all of that. And so, you know. It's why we need to continue to have conversations. Every time I see a treaty languish or be dropped 
or I see um, an invigoration of an effort to, um, uh, you know, to, re- to reinvigorate the, uh, the nuclear arsenal, I think, wow, we need to remember. We need to remember our history. We're not good at remembering our history sometimes. And, um, and the history is terrifying. And um, all you have to do is you know, go to YouTube and look at the clips of these, of these weapons when they're detonated. Or, you know, go look at the pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, my book is not a polemic against the atomic bomb. There are people in here who are all for it. There's a woman whose husband is an infantryman who will be involved in the invasion of Japan. And when the bomb goes off and Japan surrenders, she blesses God for that weapon. I mean, this, this book is not a polemic. It's not saying bomb, bombs are wrong. It's much more about the consciences of the individuals. Um, and in the meantime, my fervent hope that, uh, that we don't see these things used, that we don't forget, because the damage is so complete and indiscriminate. Everything gets blown down. Everything gets burned. Everybody dies. The, the book, as you do mention, ends with redemption for Charles and Brenda. I think, again, that redemption is possible in all of us. Absolutely, I believe it. And um, I think that we do it all the time. I think we do it in a million small gestures. We do it when we stop the car and wave somebody to go ahead. We do it when, uh, you know, somebody pays for the cup of coffee instead of the person behind them. You know, when we just recognize our mutual humanity, our common humanity and shared humanity, that there's tons of redemption in that. Because we're all flawed human beings. We all make mistakes. And I'm not even sure that I can call, like, the creation of the atomic bomb a mistake. It was such an intentional thing, you know, and it was something that was in the mind of people who are five years at war, four and a half years at war, 75 years ago. And uh, as I say, that one woman saying, like, it saved my husband. The bomb's a great thing. So I, I don't know the answers to all that. Fortunately, novelists don't have to know the answer to that. But but this story ends with a redemption and and uh, redeeming love between these two people because it's what I believe. It's uh, what I believe we're capable of. And, um, and, you know, it's a little bit what this book is a call to. I should add that even though, you know, I talk about the bomb as a very bleak thing. The bomb does not go off in this book. This book is set in Los Alamos, not Hiroshima. It's, so it's much more about these very young men with an enormously consequential task and, and, you know, and how they live with it. If you think about the best sniper in World War II, maybe he killed 200 people, the best, best fighter pilot, maybe shot down 50 planes. So what is it like for a scientist? And the way that we think of the minds of scientists, you know, and, and what fascinates them, to think about something that could kill hundreds of thousands of people. It's a whole different kind of question. And, and if they can find redemption, then, then you and me, in our lives, we should be able to do it for sure. We were just talking with Stephen P. Kiernan. He is the author of numerous novels, including The Baker's Secret, The Curiosity, and The Hummingbird. He is a graduate of University of Iowa's Writer's Workshop. He has penned the new novel, Universe of Two. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Real pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.